I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. Today's guest is someone who, unbeknownst to her, played a significant part in the direction of this season of We Can Be. As we approached season four of the podcast earlier this year, we were in the midst of a volatile national dialogue about the pandemic and what at the time, and still today, seemed to be pretty much everything else. With that in mind, we decided that we wanted to get to know those who are doing solid and often groundbreaking work in bridging divides and finding common ground. The work and writings of Jen Hus Rothberg played into that decision, and I am beyond pleased that she is joining us today. Jen is executive director of the Einhorn Collaborative, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to addressing America's crisis of disconnection by increasing opportunities for empathy and civility. She's doing that not only in her work with the Collaborative, but also as a co-producer of the documentary feature film, The Antidote, which centers on the moving stories of real-life people who are making the intentional choice to lift others up. She is backing up her advocacy for empathy and kindness with science and a thoughtfully constructed long-term plan to help us all reprogram ourselves to get along better. This is a conversation that we all need to hear. Jen, it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here, Grant. Thank you so much. Let's talk a little bit about the Einhorn Collaborative and where you work and what you do. Can you tell us a little bit about Einhorn? Einhorn Collaborative is a nonprofit family foundation. Uh, It's David Einhorn's foundation that has a mission to upend what we call the crisis of connection. And Einhorn Collaborative is a relatively new foundation. It is an evolution of the work that I'd done over the past decade with David. And we then took some time to reflect, really after the 2016 election, what's needed of us most right now after we had been doing some deep work in our mission had been, we used this language of helping people get along better. And in 2016, we realized, well, it's a whole lot more than that. It's just a whole lot more than that. This isn't just about people not getting along. And we started to ask the question, what really is going on? And that's how we arrived at not just the change we wanted to see in the world, but the problem that we feel we're up against, which is what we're calling a crisis of connection that the isolation, loneliness, polarization, partisanship, afflictions of and addictions of despair are a piece of what we believe is really foundational to missing in people's lives, which is healthy human connection, which is what I would call our oldest technology as a species. Mm. The thing that makes us our best as individuals and our best as a collective. Your description of the crisis we face as a crisis of connection is powerful to me and is making me think differently about the crisis of division. But I'm going to ask you a question about the crisis of division, and then we'll come back to the crisis of connectivity. Just this past summer, U.S. News and World Report shared that out of 17 countries surveyed, the U.S. had the highest percentage of poll respondents 
saying that they felt their society was more divided now than it was prior to the start of the pandemic. The Pew Research Center data cited in the story found that 88% of Americans who responded felt this way, so extraordinary. I'm curious if you were surprised by those statistics and what they mean to you. I don't think anyone would be surprised by hearing those statistics. And the way I think about this, though, is that while that is a perception of how we feel, it is an incomplete story of who we are. I'm a big believer, not because it's my own belief, but research really demonstrates this. And and you and I have spoken about Rutger Bregman's work of the stories we tell ourselves of being divided or the Lord of the Flies version of who we believe we are as a species further perpetuates behavior and validates behavior and validates stories that reinforce that story over and again. And if we were to flip that story, when we actually look, and I think he said something, it's like 700 different studies of human behavior demonstrates that we are collaborative, we are compassionate, we are not that worst version of ourselves. Rather, when we're put under that kind of potential crisis of faith of how we're going to engage with one another, we're compassionate and we're kind and we treat other people the way we would want to be treated. And yet we don't tell that story. We don't tell the story that Eric Klinenberg writes about the heat wave in Chicago. The communities that fared well were the ones that knew their neighbors. We don't tell the stories that Rebecca Solnit writes in her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, that in crisis, people find their way to one another. And they actually don't just do what's in it for me. They actually look out for those around them. That is who we are, too. And if we were to tell ourselves more, I have a big belief that we would shift the stories we tell ourselves of who we are. Like, it, it, it's perpetuating itself. I really appreciate you mentioning Rutger Bregman, who is a Dutch journalist and historian who wrote a book called Humankind, and it's brilliant. I think it ought to be mandatory reading for a very cynical age because it really does do exactly what what you just argued, which is uh, make the case that we are we are much better to each other than we think we are. So why do you think we keep doing this? Why do we keep telling ourselves this narrative of division? It's sensational. We gravitate to the negative. As human beings, we're drawn to those stories. Part of it is because we're so used to hearing them. It's really Brene Brown who talks about this fear of experiencing joy. And as human beings, some of this is we don't necessarily let ourselves fully move into a space where we can connect and engage and be at our best. Because if you let yourself do that, the fear of losing it is what keeps you from fully engaging in it. We do a lot of work in first days, weeks, months of life, autonomic emotional connection. What is it for really moms and babies to establish emotional connection, healthy attachment, really in the beginning of life? And the moms who have premature babies, so these are the babies who are at most risk of something going on, there's a disruption in their ability to connect. And you actually have to help mom go in and touch baby and connect with baby. And mom is always so fearful of connection because they're so fearful of loss. 
And I think if we think of human beings, that is at our species mammalian level. We are so protective of ourselves for experiencing that horrible sense of loss that sometimes we don't let ourselves fully experience what it is to be at our best when we feel emotional connection in ways where we let ourselves go. In your work, I think what's amazing is you actually have figured out a theory for how philanthropy or anybody who cares about this can begin to begin to address this through the three B's. Can you just walk us through that and how that methodology applies for you? Look, when we really studied what was at heart of the crisis of connection, we had to say, okay, well, if that's the problem, then what are the solutions? What are the behaviors or experiences that people have in their lives that help them fully live into connection? And a lot of people would know this as you think about even just social capital, but social capital breaks down into these two buckets of what people call bonding, which is deep, tethered, nurturing relationships with people like you which is where we talk about parenting and your early first relationships. When your needs are met by another human being, that is what actually helps you trust others later in life. So bonding, building relationships with people like you, absolutely essential. Then the idea of bridging is that we actually also have to build healthy relationships with people who are not like us. And here in this country that we live in, this multi-faith, multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy, it is that much more essential that we have the kinds of experiences, human connection, deep relational trust with people who are not like us. And then the third B was when we looked at these two critical, what I would call developmental aspects of a human being's life, bonding and bridging, we also recognize that we're in this broader culture that we also have to shift. We believe actually that there are communities that are demonstrating that we can come together and be in community with one another. And that's what we started calling building, which is about building a culture of relationalism and pluralism. Relationalism speaks to our bonding work and pluralism speaks to our bridging work. So let's take each of these three for a moment and just talk a a little bit about each one. Bonding, which you describe as being a process of connecting with people who are like you. I don't think we would be feeling the sense of disconnection that you're describing in our culture if that process of bonding were going well. And yet it seems like we're living in a time when The only part of your three B's that is going well is where people are finding their tribe, be it on the internet or anywhere else, and bonding for better or worse with people who think like they do and act like they do. So what's missing in the way that we're bonding right now that could be done differently or improved? In the crisis of connection, you're seeing people find places where they feel a deep sense of belonging, even if at the animating purpose of that belonging is hatred towards other. They're longing for a place where they feel seen, heard, and valued, where they're part of something bigger than themselves, where they feel that they can contribute. We need to upend that if at its core the purpose is to win at all costs and hate another, that is not successful in our book. So, look, our bonding work really focuses on that very early childhood space 
there's a concept called autonomic emotional connection. Moms and babies, parents and children, babies and caregivers in the early moments of life develop a autonomic is another way of saying almost automatic. So it's not happening up in your brain. It's actually happening at your gut level. It's your nervous system that's connecting. And you can develop pathways for how you create mutual calm with another human being. And we have learned that by doing that very early in the research, by putting moms and babies together who one is experiencing some form of crisis through co-regulation, that together that unit both thrive and become healthier because they're reliant on each other to mutually calm. So we're doing that work very early in life and shifting even the way pediatrics looks at the health, instead of looking at the health of just the child, looking at the health of the relationship is predictive of outcomes for both mom and baby much later in life. And our hypothesis, and this is the question, I'm sorry it takes a bit to get to, but the hypothesis is, is that if you could very early develop the autonomic emotional connection where you can create mutual calm with someone early in life, then the research demonstrates that your ability to do that with other people is much easier, much faster. It just becomes part of who you are. That brings us to the second piece, which is the piece that gets all the attention these days, I think, because it's about yeah. us connecting with the other, the person who's different from us, how we actually figure out how to bridge those divides. We're living at a time where a lot of folks will tell you that's not important. You know, what's important is my fighting for what I believe in and people who don't think like I do are in the way. Why do you feel that's destructive and why is it important to do this bridging work? Yeah, how does that feel being in this state of divisiveness? I mean, it doesn't make anyone feel good. There are these critical things we all have to focus on, like, you know, our democracy, of course, climate change, right? These like absolute, if we don't focus on these, if we don't focus on what it is to be and live with one another and figure out that the circle of concern has to be wide enough to include everyone, then there won't be anything else for us to work on. Those are the stakes. But when we think holistically that this is a shared pursuit that all of us have to contribute towards and all of us have to be a part of, and all of us deserves good intentions to assume the best. And I'm not saying that everyone is the best actor, but I think the majority are. And when you start to really shift your mindset of people aren't out to get me to win, but I'm actually in this because we have to figure this out together. I'm positive we will come up to, with better solutions than we would if we just are trying to win the next short-term fight. So if I have healthy relationships with people who are like me and respectful relationships with people who are different, then perhaps I'm equipped to start on your third B, which is about how to create the sort of society that fosters this, right? And this is your notion of building. Why is it important for our culture to embrace the notion of cultural pluralism at a time when we really are locked, I think, in battle over ideological purity and having a sameness of ideology and opinion. Because that was the promise that this country was to be that never was. 
but can be. And it requires us to recognize that the difference of opinions is the very thing that's going to help us realize the possibility of what we're after. And Eric Liu, who spends a lot of time, and I know you probably know Eric. Um, I do. He's terrific. So listen to an Eric Liu civic sermon for a couple minutes and feel inspired about what role you play, whoever you are listening, in creating and shaping the culture and the world in which we want to live in. I bring you greetings from the 52nd freest nation on earth. As an American, it irritates me that my nation keeps sinking in the annual rankings published by Freedom House. And yet, I remain hopeful. Optimism is for spectators. Hope implies agency. It says I have a hand in the outcome. Democratic hope requires faith not in a strong man or a charismatic savior, but in each other. And it forces us to ask, how can we become worthy of such faith? I believe we are at a moment of moral awakening, the kind that comes when old certainties collapse. At the heart of that awakening is what I call civic religion. I define civic religion as a system of shared beliefs and collective practices by which the members of a self-governing community choose to live like citizens. I'm talking about a deeper, broader, ethical conception of being a contributor to community, a member of the body. Democracy works only when enough of us believe democracy works. It is at once a gamble and a miracle. Its legitimacy comes not from the outer frame of constitutional rules, but from the inner workings of civic spirit. We are a people of a whole sorts of different backgrounds, experiences, worldviews, with a whole lot of repair and healing that we need to do. And yet we need one another to build the future that we all want. You wrote a great piece titled The Hopeful Buds of Pluralism in the Garden of Democracy, which is a mouthful as a title, but it, I think, speaks to your thought process about what you personally could do to counter the vitriol that was in the daily news in the lead up to and aftermath of the 2020 election. You talked about how a pluralist culture is essential to the future, not just of popular culture in the U.S., but of a functioning democracy. And you were very clear that this goes beyond simply tolerating each other. There's something more that's at stake. Can you describe it as the deep, up-close, relational work of discovering the beauty and humanity in each other, even when we deeply disagree, which is a lovely phrase and thought. Do we still have that in us? Yes, 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 yes. It's so hard to hate up close. We have to spend time with one another in each other's lives. It's impossible to not find something in someone else because someone else is a mirror of who you are. Mm. That is who we are as a species. That's who we are as human beings. We have to actually take the time to know one another. And by the way, through listening and knowing someone else, you get the reward because they want to know and see you. The very act of being an active listener and hearing someone else's story is the best gift we have as human beings. Everyone wants to be heard. Everyone wants to be known. 
and taking the time to do that, to actually feel seen, feel heard, give that gift to someone else, it's impossible not to find humanity in one another. This is a really low tech solution to the problem. Talk to the person on the bus next to you. Talk to the person who you get the cup of coffee from. Be curious about what their life is for one minute and you will be rewarded immediately. We assume people are too busy for us and yet we're longing to feel seen and connected with. There's actually a science to all of this especially in the field of psychology and the exploration of what happens to our brains when we make connections or when we don't. How important is it to have that scientific understanding of what's going on in our brains when you speak to people about bonding, bridging, and building? It depends who you ask, Grant. You know, I think there are many mm. people who want, who need to be convinced with the science, and there are many people who need to be converted through story. And I think about science and story as two critical ways in to build the culture. And we need to meet human beings where they are. Some are moved through story and see themselves in that and realize, yes, oh, that's me. We do a lot of work with StoryCorps. But when you listen to a three-minute snippet of two human beings finding one another and connecting, especially across difference, contact theory demonstrates that it actually ripples to how you feel about people as a result of listening to someone else having that connection. And so that story, that works for many people. Say a little bit more about contact theory and why seeing other people connecting is good for us. Yeah, contact theory is actually that when we build relationships with people, especially those who are not like us, it changes the way we feel about that entire group of people. And unfortunately, one of the things that is getting in our way is that we are immediately focusing on an individual's group identity when we get to know them as opposed to who they are as an individual. And yet, when you build that human connection with someone of that different category, it can shift and shape how you feel about all other people who identify with that group. So contact theory is crucial because it upends a stereotype that you have about a category of people by finding common humanity with someone of that group. I want to make a change, and I want our generation to be an aspect of that change. Putting time and practice into family, love, being a good neighbor. Stand if you have ever gone to a study session and you or someone brought food. Stand if you have ever lent or borrowed a textbook. The single most important thing for us all is caring for your fellow man. If you have that in your arsenal, you can do just about everything. Stand if you helped a fellow student out with encouragement, direction, accountability, or even love. We all are here today because we all helped each other. We need to be kind, respectful, and responsible within society to live in a civil democracy. I think it's the glue that holds us together. It's just really important because without kindness, we'd all be maniacs. 
One of the ways in which you modeled this was as co-producer of a film called The Antidote. What did you learn from doing that project? And what were there any stories that were especially powerful for you? What's so powerful for me about that film is many of us, especially in the social change business, look at things through categories like immigration or education or home insecurity or food insecurity. And yet what the antidote does is it demonstrates that human connection and feeling seen, heard, valued, relationships at the center of every one of those sectors is the critical piece missing and the one that we need to focus on. I absolutely love the story of Bridge Meadows, which is a co-living facility of elderly who foster youth. And one of the things we know is we actually have young people who need adults in their lives, and we have adults who have capacity to give. And human capital is one of these very under-resourced, underappreciated things we have. We need one another. So you put these two groups together, and they thrive because they need one another in both of their lives. The mutuality, the reciprocity, the relationalism is what actually helps both young people and the older people. And all of our work really looks at relationships being the unit of change. Forbes magazine, I think it was, observed about the antidote, something that I thought was true as well, which is that the movie pushed back against the idea that being kind is weak. And similarly, you know, I think we have in our culture a sense right now that relationships are kind of weak. You know, coming from where I do, there's been a lot of mockery of Mr. Rogers in national media because he's kind and he expresses so much faith in relationships. And some people see that as not the issue of the moment. How important do you think is it that we reframe the way we see kindness and the way we see relationships so that they are modern virtues again instead of these weak abstractions that it's easy to dismiss. We need Mr. Rogers now more than ever. Mm. <laughs> so I'm I'm indebted to Pittsburgh and all that you have done to lift up and advance his worldview. I'm constantly seen as the one with the squishy soft stuff. <clears throat> and I get the, oh, that's so nice what you work on. That's so nice. The thing I just keep pointing people to, and every time I talk to people about our work, and if you really get into the heart of it, they find that in themselves, it's what they're longing for too. Hmm. This is not a performative virtue of acting kind. We are not asking people to act away. We're asking people to be away. It is a way of being. It is a way of seeing each other. It's a way of valuing our connections with one another and how we live and move through life. Talking with you, I am struck by how often you ask the simple question of, you know, what, what are people feeling? What are you feeling? And what do you think other people want and feel? Questions that we're not naturally 
driven to ask, it seems, right now. But it's a simple level of introspection. It's disarming, actually. When I hear you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, why don't, why don't we ask that question more often? It reminds me of the piece that you wrote about having COVID early in the pandemic, where you told a searingly honest story about what it was like to be ill for 18 days in the early days of the pandemic, and also used it to reflect on what it must be like to be another person. You wrote in that piece, among many powerful things, this virus might not discriminate who gets it, but circumstances vastly differ how you weather this brutal storm. Your privilege is not lost on you, and this feels wholly unfair. Tell us a little bit about how it helped you see your own privilege and what it made you realize about others. I had never been that sick ever in my life. Look, I even started from the place of a friend who's a doctor gave me advice. I had doctors calling me because they're friends of mine, checking in every day and helping me navigate it. So just the social capital that I had to withstand it was remarkable. I could text my husband with anything that I needed if I could, and it would appear at my door. I didn't lose my job because I couldn't be there. My husband, who was caretaking for me and homeschooling, his job was secure. My children didn't have to worry about the next meal they would have. They didn't need to worry about whether they had shelter above their heads. And yet, I was sicker than I'd ever been, and it was scarier than I've ever experienced. And I can't imagine if any of those other things had been present in my life, how I could have possibly withstood what I did. And that's what makes it wholly unfair. My bottom doesn't come even close to what it is for so many others who experience on the regular, the level of vulnerability or disaster or crisis. And that's what feels crazy unfair to me. If this is so hard for me, given everything that I have, I can't even put myself in the shoes of what it would be like if some of that were ripped out from under me. For people listening to your words and who are inspired to want this, to tap into what they're really feeling, like you've suggested, and and to want more of a capacity in their lives to tap into kindness and to build compassion, to create that pluralistic society you're describing, or just have the healthy bridging and bonding that you've also described, where do we start you can do it right now. Hang up the podcast. If you're listening still, thank you. <laughs> uh, but whoever's right next to you, make eye contact and say hello and help them feel seen and heard in this world right now. And know that whatever it is they're carrying is likely heavy, just like you. Mm. It's amazing when we open ourselves up and allow us to talk about our connections with one another, what comes forward. It changes everything. So what do you do? Express emotion. Be fully present. Really listen. Put away your phone. <laughs> They're all things we have the capacity to do. It's just, it's very hard. If you were to ask people in my life, this is a, a daily exercise that I have to constantly remind myself and practice to do too. 
There is a sense, I think, in our culture that we're trapped by technology, that as a result of technology, we're losing the capacity to connect as human beings. Do you buy the idea that we're losing the capacity? Is it the use it or lose it thing? I don't think we're losing the capacity. I think we just need to be reminded that it is inherent and core to who we are. There are disruptions and forces and trends that are getting in our way. And if we can remind ourselves that this is what we long for, that we're inherently built to be relational and interdependent social beings who want to feel seen, heard, and valued, that we are better when we're together, then that reminder should be enough to disrupt some of those trends and forces. I really believe that. A use or lose, we're a very old species. I don't believe that this is core to our technology of how we're wired. You come into the world wholly dependent on another human being. You can't walk your first, you can't talk, you can't feed. You are relying upon someone else. That is not going anywhere. I'm reminded of a quote from Margaret Mead who was asked, like, what was really the beginning of civilization? And I think she tells this story of fossils that are found of a femur that had obviously been broken but had repaired. And she says that that was the marker of the beginning of civilization because you know that if you broke a leg and there were, you know, all these different things that could come and you couldn't walk, could eat you or you would die or starve, Someone helped that person. Someone lifted them up and took them somewhere and took care of them. That is who we are as a species. That is our civilization. Literally gives me goosebumps to hear that story and hear you recount it. Jen, the name of this program is We Can Be. How would you complete that sentence? We can be what? We can be there for each other in ways that we all long for. I hope that you'll remember Even when you're feeling blue That it's you I like It's you yourself It's you It's you I like Jen said, This is not a performative virtue of acting kind. This is a way of being kind. I believe we can be the way. I share that belief. And I also share Jen's belief that being kind and striving to build genuine relationships with others who at first pass seem miles away from who we are is not weak. On the contrary, it often takes enormous strength to go against what we have been programmed to do and feel especially against a national media backdrop that elevates conflict in an often endless, repetitive cycle of negativity. Jen and the Einhorn Collaborative have the strength and fortitude to do this work with impressive energy, and they're backing it up with science, data, and an intuitive sense for how important it is for both our personal and collective health, and perhaps for the survival of our democracy founded in no small part on a belief in the common good. Jen believes that while we have the ability to understand ourselves and others and relate positively across differences, we have been programmed to stifle that instinct. As she said, there are disruptions and trends and forces getting in our way. 
And all we have to do to break through is remind ourselves that we are inherently built to be relational, interdependent social beings. Jen is a vibrant reminder of that promise we each hold, to have the strength to be caring and to not simply act kind, but to really be kind. She knows we can do it, and so do I.